Good morning, beloved. It is so good to see you. It does my heart so much good uh, to be here with you this morning and uh, to open God's word with you. And so I want to invite you to open up uh, your Bible with me uh, to Philippians chapter 2. You can open up your Bible or your device, um, but if you open up your device, for me, you have to promise to make swishy noises when you turn the electronic pages. All right, just for me. That would be great. Um, We're going to be looking today at Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verses 12 through 18. And um, as we look at those verses together, I was reflecting this week and I was thinking about it was roughly 12 years ago um, that I moved into my home in Upper Marlboro. And uh, when we moved in to the house... Uh, it was, um, well, it will be very soon 100 years old. And uh, it was built in 1925, and um, it certainly looks that way sometimes. Uh, but never more so uh, when we first moved in. And uh, not only was it lacking any finished floors or appliances, but one of its more significant issues was that there was a large dip in the floor of the main level, right in the middle of the house. And um, unbeknownst to me, this is actually an option. I I called my good buddy, Paul Stollerich, who knows things about these things. And uh, he brought a very small contraption, about six inches tall, called a bottle jack and a six by six post. And uh, the next thing I knew, we were literally lifting the house off of the ground, um, jacking it up. And so you could see where this large dip was in the middle of the floor that all along the walls in that section, there were large cracks where the house was literally bending in on itself. And so it was potentially crumbling under its own weight and under the pressure of gravity that was pushing down on it. And with this little contraption, we were able to correct that and um, do work on the joists and things like that. And, um, you know, now when I drop a ball or a marble in my house, it doesn't automatically go to the middle of the floor. But all of that had me thinking about some of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. And specifically thinking about how, you know, the pressure of the world and the pressure of fighting against sin, whether that's our own sin or being sinned against or simply living in the effects of sin in a fallen world, sometimes are overwhelming for us. And they cause cracks and crevices and almost as if you are crumbling in upon yourself. And I think Paul has something like this in mind when he's writing to encourage the Philippian church. If you remember last week, Pastor Tyrone helped us see the Apostle Paul's encouragement to the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel by standing unified as his people around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul gives us the most extraordinary example In the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And after holding up to our eyes the example of Jesus, Paul takes the next few verses to really get into the nitty-gritty, as I like to say, of what it might actually look like for the church in Philippi, uh, for them to follow this example of Jesus, for them to live a life worthy of the gospel. He encourages them to keep pressing on in their fight for faith. He reminds them that the progress in the gospel is the basis of their joy in the midst of suffering. So, what does it look like for you and I as Christians today to follow the example of Christ and fully rely on God when life is difficult and the pressures of sin and of living in a world that is fallen want to crumble in and culture is pushing back hard on the very foundations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what we want to look at today. And so let me invite you to look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And let me read for us. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So again, friends, what does it look like for you and I as Christians today to follow the example of Christ and fully rely on God when life is difficult and the culture is pressing back? What does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, I think Paul wants to show us two things. The first one is to persevere in faith. And we're going to see that in verses 12 and 13. So persevere in faith. All right. So notice with me in verse 12 how Paul addresses the church as my beloved. He points out that they have always obeyed. And so the Philippian church was, generally speaking, they were a healthy congregation. There was a, a deep trust and love between Paul and this church. They've been generous to Paul. They've cared for his needs and provided funds to send him and others to share the gospel. And he's seen them grow in their faith. And even though Paul commends their obedience, he's careful to continue encouraging them to press on in their faith. Because he knows that this is no time to slack off. And you can read about how Paul and Silas were arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. I'd encourage you to check that out this afternoon when you get home. And ever since that time, persecution had become the norm for the church 
in Philippi. Not only are they being persecuted, but their beloved leader, Paul, is in prison and could be executed because of his faith in Jesus. So it's safe to assume that they were uncomfortable at best and in fear for their lives at worst. And so in this moment, Paul lovingly encourages them to continue in their obedience to God, even though he's not with them to help encourage them. He tells them to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying to them, keep going, keep pressing on, don't lose faith, keep looking to Jesus, follow his example, trust in his work to save you. And we should be clear that nothing about the context here should make us think that with fear and trembling means shamefully cowering in the corner of a dark room, right? I think Paul is highlighting again the challenge of his absence. He's reminding them that they'll need to continue to grow in their reliance on God with one another now. This will require them to know God and to have a sincere reverence for his holiness and his kingship for themselves. It will require them to be sensitive to what is right and wrong, listening closely to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and acting accordingly for themselves. Paul won't be here for them to consult with or to hold up the spiritual guardrails anymore. And this is the case in any sort of learning environment, isn't it? We tend to lean on those who are more mature or farther along for guidance and assurance that that what we're practicing is actually correct. And so you can see that in um, just the eyes of children, right? When they're confronted with a circumstance that they're not sure how to handle. And so they kind of look up and say, hey, what, what do we do here? You see it in their eyes, you know? How do we handle this one? And that's a good thing. We all need help growing and maturing. And now the Philippians were going to have to learn to do this without Paul. And so... Paul's words in verse 12, they remind me of the way many parents send their kids off to college for the first time. I see a couple of you who are uh, here um, after experiencing just your first semester of college. And uh, several of our college students are coming back at this time of year and will be home for the next few months. Um, And I imagine mom and dad likely sent you off to school uh, for your first semester, whenever that was with similar sounding words as Paul. They probably sounded something like, hey, we love you. You're you're a good kid. And we're so proud of how you're maturing. But listen, listen, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be different when we're not there with you. So if you're going to stay the course, you're going to have to be intentional And be sure to do the things that we've taught you. You have to own this now. And the more our independence grows, the more our true self tends to stand out, doesn't it? So friend, let me ask, when you find yourself unencumbered, what stands out? And this will be a gauge for you of what's inside 
your heart. So kids, when your parents aren't around, do you behave in the way that they've taught you? Adults, when you're driving alone in the car, how is your attitude toward all the other drivers on the road? Especially the ones who don't drive the way that you would like for them to. Or college students and young adults, do you live the same way in front of your friends at school or co-workers as you do at home with your family and your church family? What kind of actions and attitudes is your heart inclined toward when you sense there will be no consequences? Well, friends, if we're being honest, left to ourselves without Jesus, all of our hearts will always be inclined toward doing the things that God tells us not to do. The Bible calls this sin. And in fact, the Bible tells us that our sin is so pervasive that it's not only affecting our actions that we do, but the thoughts that we think and the very nature of our existence. So, even though we may not have yelled and cursed at the other crazy driver who cut us off, the furious anger and unbridled torrent of hateful remarks that all happened inside our head condemns us as sinners, as well as the fact that in our very nature that we are more than capable of such unrighteous anger and violence. And the Bible tells us that the cost of sin is death into everlasting separation from God and punishment for our disobedience to him. But the good news, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. God in his love saw our great sin and sent us a great savior. Amen? His son, Jesus. Though he was fully God, he humbled himself to become a man so that he could live a sinless life on our behalf and die as a sacrifice for our sin. He did everything for us that we could not do for ourselves so that we could be saved from death and hell and have everlasting life with him in heaven. Friends, that salvation from sin and death can be your reality today if you simply believe that Jesus took your punishment upon himself and paid the price for your sin and trust in him alone for your salvation. And in the same way that Jesus conquered death in his resurrection, you too will rise to be with him on the judgment day and will be with him and his people in his kingdom forever. Brothers and sisters, Paul reminds us that our progress in faith will require our effort. But his confidence is not ultimately in our efforts. Look at what he says in verse 13. This is so important for us to hear today. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's sovereign work in his people for his glory is the basis of Paul's confidence and hope. 
here and all throughout this letter, despite the significant suffering that Paul is enduring, you find him displaying contentment and peace and assurance and mostly joy. But how is that possible? Surely the church in Philippi is reading this letter and asking, but how do you know, Paul? How do you really know? Don't you see there's opposition from every side? There's persecution coming in in every angle. God sure does feel distant, Paul. (laughs) You're not even here with us because you're in prison. Hello? We're trying to hold on, but it's not looking good, Paul. And we simply hear the calm assurance of Paul reminding us that fulfilling the example of Christ in our own lives does not finally depend on our own strength. It's God who works in us. And nothing, friends, nothing can cause him to waver from his goals or cause his plans to be thwarted. In fact, Paul is so confident, he's so confident of this truth that this is the second time that he brings it up in this letter. Back in chapter 1, he writes this, I am sure, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I think all of us would be blessed to be reminded today that God is at work in you. Some of you may be here and overwhelmed You may be overwhelmed with just the weight of sin. Perhaps it's your own sinful actions and attitudes that are burdening you. And even with your best efforts, you're struggling to shake a besetting sin. And maybe it's that you've been sinned against. And you're having a really hard time dealing with the lasting effects that a past trauma or abuse have wrapped you up in. Or perhaps you're feeling so tired and burdened by the weight of living in a fallen world where the effects of sin are all around you. In sickness and disease, in a global pandemic, in wildfires and hurricanes and political turmoil, the effects of generation after generation of racial injustice, perpetual Conflict among nations and people groups, a wayward child or friend who just won't heed your warnings and calls to trust Jesus. And that list, it just goes on and on. Well, listen, Christian, in the midst of these pressures, we can be tempted to throw in the towel, or to fear that we're not actually his child. But hear this reminder from Paul today, Christian. If you're struggling against sin, if you find yourself fighting at all, 
then Paul is saying that the only way that's possible is because God is at work in you. The only way that's possible is because he's working. And not only is he working in you, but he's working with purpose in you. It says for his good pleasure and your good. So maybe you're struggling today or in this season. Be encouraged, Christian, that God is working in you. Church, this is the context where strugglers gather with other strugglers. The church gathered is meant to be a collection of broken sinners seeking to fight their sin with one another and to persevere to the end with God's help. So, friends, don't be afraid to call the saints around you to share in your struggle, to persevere, and to fight alongside you. We need to remind one another of what God says is true and good and right. And we need to help one another to practice those things. So whether we're dealing with the consequences of our own sin, or the effects of being sinned against, or the difficulty of living in a fallen world, we can help one another to follow the example of Jesus' humble obedience to the Father with confident hope, because we know that God is sovereignly working in his people. This, this confident hope that we have to persevere in faith is why Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is so overwhelmingly joyful. Words like joy and rejoice are mentioned in this pretty brief letter over a dozen times, despite the significant suffering that Paul and the church are experiencing. And that brings us into our next point. Again, we're looking at what does it look like for you and I as Christians today to follow Christ's example of humble obedience. So how do we work out our salvation as Paul encourages us to do? So point number two is stand out from the world. Stand out from the world. And I think I want us to break this into three kind of sub points. I think Paul is getting at three specific things here. So as we stand out from the world, what, is, what does that actually look like? All right. Well, the first one is to be unified, right? To be unified. So if we just look again at uh, verse 14, we see he writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Right? So one of the ways that we're called to work out our salvation and stand out from the world is to be unified with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't think that Paul means that we're supposed to agree on every single detail of everything about our lives. However, the attitude with which we interact with one another should never be marked by complaining and friction. In fact, the opposite should be true. Especially considering, especially considering, friends, how much we have to be thankful for. Be 
because of Christ's work in each of our hearts, we are all generously receiving exponentially more in this life and in eternity than we deserve at all. We have so much to be grateful for. That glorious reality, that truth should cause us to extend grace and humility to one another in the midst of conflict and peace and patience in the midst of any kind of confusion or misunderstandings. It should cause us to experience contentment in all circumstances, as Paul famously explains in chapter 4. Paul is concerned that the internal bickering going on among the members of the church in Philippi will cause the witness of the church to be tarnished in the community. Christian unity exemplified through thankfulness and contentment and other things is so essential because it reveals, as Paul writes in verse 15, that we are truly children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. First Baptist Church, as we follow the example of Christ, we are called to stand out from the world through our unity. Paul is telling us that we should be marked by thankfulness, contentment, purity, and light in a world that's filled with selfishness, greed, impurity, darkness, and death. And he gives us this beautiful word picture to represent how we should stand out from the world. Christians are to shine like stars in the universe. Friends, it's an incredible call for us to reflect the glorious light of our magnificent God into a dark and dying world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must work hard to maintain our unity around the gospel. Our relationships with one another are vital for our own perseverance in faith and for our testimony to the world. So I want to encourage you to take advantage of the opportunities of just the formative everyday rhythms of church life that help us all to put a high value on unity. So one example of that, every first Sunday of the month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I know that COVID has made it difficult for everyone to participate lately. However, my point is that instilled in the regular cycle of the church calendar is an opportunity for you to evaluate your unity with one another. Next week, Lord willing, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when we do, we always remind each other that a part of this remembrance of Christ and his sacrificial work for us on the cross is also a reminder that we are covenanted together as a local body of believers. Tyrone mentioned it just this morning in the announcements, reminding us. Next week, friends, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. If there's something unresolved, it's time to work it out. And if we have an unresolved quarrel with someone in the church, we should take that opportunity to address that before we take 
the Lord's Supper. So take advantage of that, that opportunity that's in the regular life cycle of the church to, to put a high value on our unity. Another example, friends, is prayer. I don't know about you, but it is really difficult for me to maintain a quarrel with one of you when I'm praying for you and with you all the time. It's almost impossible. So consider putting a high value on our unity as the body of Christ by praying for one another. A great way to start doing that, if you haven't, is by praying through the church directory. You know, if you take one page of the church directory per day and pray a brief prayer for each person on that page, you can pray for all of the members of the church and their children in 10 to 15 minutes a day and pray for the entire church in less than a month. And you can just keep on going. Also, consider getting in on our, uh, our Zoom prayer meetings on the first and third Wednesdays of the month. I guarantee you that hearing the praises and prayers of the saints in the church will help us maintain our unity. And if you're concerned about being called on to pray, don't be. We never push anyone to pray aloud that doesn't want to. And let's be honest, sometimes it's fun to say no to Pastor Zach, just, just for fun, right? So just go for it. Amen. One last thing, if we're serious about maintaining our unity as a church family, friends, we must, we must recognize the reality that social media plays a significant role in many of our relationships and how the world sees us as Christians. With that in mind, friends, I just want to strongly, strongly encourage everyone who uses social media to just genuinely evaluate the ways in which you participate in and consume it. And I don't say that because I think social media is evil or anything like that. You'll find me on all the ads. But I say that because I think we often don't recognize how much weight our online presence carries in our relationships. And if we walk into those platforms without a clear purpose for how we intend to use them, they can sometimes wreak havoc in our relationships and damage our unity. And sometimes without our even really realizing it. And especially in a time like this, where our opportunities to be together are so limited. So it's so important that we be just as wise and discerning in our interactions online as we are with one another in person. Our unity around the gospel and our witness to the world are at stake. So after being unified, Paul invites us to proclaim the gospel. And this is another way that we're called to stand out from the world. It's to proclaim the gospel. So notice in verse 16, Paul says the church is holding fast to the word of life. And in the context here of the church being a light to the world... Paul's saying that they should be known as people who are sharing the gospel with the example of their lives in particular in this context, but also with their words. The culture in which the church was born in Philippi was utterly pagan. 
Um, as a Roman colony, it was heavily populated by Roman citizens, especially former Roman soldiers who had sworn allegiance to the emperor, and many actually worshipped him as a deity. Ancient Greek and Egyptian gods and goddesses were also worshipped in Philippi during Paul's time there. So the very fact that the Christians in Philippi did not do these things probably made them stick out like a sore thumb and surely made the community curious about them at best. So I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates this verse. He writes, provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night. So Christian, are you providing the people within your sphere of influence a glimpse of good living and of the living God? Are you carrying the light-giving message into the night? I don't think that Paul has, you know, an evangelism rally in mind here. He seems to be getting at the everyday rhythms of life where the fact that you are a Christian just stands out because you reserve your Sunday mornings to go to church or because you give thanks to God for your food or your family or your possessions or because you read your Bible and try to live by it or because you have a confident hope that, it's, that all is well with your soul in the midst of a world in chaos. Friend, you just stand out. You're simply exhibiting, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Christian, don't forget just how impactful your example can be as you shine out into the world. And also notice that Paul says the word of life is the light that you shine into the world holding out the word of life or is it holding out something else is it the light giving gospel that the world sees reflecting from you or is it cold religion or nationalism or self-help or legalistic fundamentalism or miraculous signs and wonders or a flashy show filled with good morals or repeatable prayer. If we're not sure about that, we should refer back to verses 5 through 11 that Paul gives us above. Friends, it's so easy for us to unintentionally wrap the gospel up with other things in the world that have no business being mentioned in the same sentence. Pastor Bertram used to remind me regularly that what we save people with is what we save them to. And what he meant was that if we're calling people to surrender their lives to anything or anyone but Jesus, we're setting them up for a spiritual disaster of false hope. So First Baptist Church, you've selected your pastors here. And given us a specific responsibility to teach and defend this gospel here at our church. And I'm so grateful for that privilege and honor. And I'm thrilled with those that you put in that role. But if the right teaching of the gospel should ever waver with one of those pastors, we all have a collective responsibility as the church 
to remove that pastor from his position for the sake of the gospel and the witness of the church. Elders, amen? Amen. The church of Jesus Christ must always stand out from the world by clearly and unashamedly holding out the gospel message. As a church family, this should also be our greatest consideration as we evaluate what individuals or organizations that we partner with locally and around the world. So we've discussed being unified. We have discussed proclaiming the gospel in this last piece. As we stand out in the world, Paul's telling us to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Rejoice in the midst of suffering. So finally, we stand out by rejoicing and we see that joy just it really bursts forth uh, from Paul in the final part of this section. Um, just in the amount of times that it's mentioned, uh, if nothing else. Notice how the end of verse 16, it, it kind of almost seems a bit out of joint from the rest. As Paul kind of turns to make this personal note, um, he considers how the church in Philippi will take the gospel forward to the world. And as he does that, he connects his own effectiveness in ministry to the way the church lived out their calling with one another. And just that thought filled him with joy. And we get verse 17. Look at verse 17 where he writes, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This sacrificial image, it was, it was common at the time. A priest would offer a sacrifice and then later pour out a sacrificial drink offering to complement it. When referring to a person, it often meant their death. So Paul viewed his service and potential death as a complement or contribution to the Philippians' service. So Paul obviously views his struggles and the Philippians' struggles in a way that is radically different from the way that most of us would. He's facing the possibility of his own execution and the demise of all of his hard work that he's done to build the church in Philippi. Yet, he seems completely content that his labor and ministry at Philippi would be so modestly offered up to God, along with all of their sacrifice and service, even if all of that work would end in his death. Paul just shines forth the humility of Christ here. He views himself and his possible death as a complement to their sacrifice and not vice versa. And this thought gave him so much joy that he literally writes, I rejoice and co-rejoice with you all. And then I love he invites the Philippians to take their own kind of double dose of joy. And likewise, they also should be glad and rejoice with me. The Philippian Christians, friends, perhaps confused, perhaps becoming a bit frustrated and faint of heart, needed to be reminded of the bigger picture. 
They needed to have their lives and struggles put into the perspective of the span of the universe and into the hands of the sovereign God. And friends, it's likely that you and I need the same perspective today. This joy and contentment that Paul exhibits in the midst of his suffering, and he invites us to partake in with him, is all driven by a much greater reality. And that reality is Jesus Christ himself. Allow his example of humble obedience and exaltation that we saw in verses 5 through 11 last week to be your bedrock of assurance of future victory with Christ. Friends, let that motivate you to always work out your own salvation with fear and trembling when life is difficult and to persevere in faith when that seems too costly or when it feels like the foundation of faith is being shaken by the pressures of the world. Remember, brother and sister, God is sovereignly working in you. And has not left you alone in your fight for faith. Christ is the assurance of that. So let's, friends, brothers and sisters, persevere together. And let's stand out together as lights shining in a dark world. Amen? Let's pray.